Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is five sales and marketing myths with my friend Mary Keogh. Mary Keogh is a senior strategist at a company called Gorilla76, and they do a lot of marketing in the industrial and manufacturing space. So it's not exactly logistics and supply chain, but there's definitely some overlap. And the similarities when it comes to marketing and advertising is is definitely there. Mary is a writer, and so she writes quite a bit uh, on LinkedIn. And I discovered her through my friend Blythe Broomleave. Mary's got some fantastic insights. When she writes about something, she knows she shares research. I met her a month or so ago and finally got her on my podcast. And we talked about some of the sales marketing myths. Some There's some things we just do without thinking about it. Mary's going to dissuade you of those things. But before we get to the interview, I want to tell you about my friends over at Tusk Logistics. That's T-U-S-K logistics.com. Tusk is a small parcel shipping network, very similar to UPS and FedEx or the Postal Service, except you can save 40%. 40% with Tusk Logistics. And the way they do that is they've got a great technology that connects you to all of the great small parcel regional carriers. So there's a ton of these companies around that are just regional. And uh, they're great. They usually are even better than than the big guys in their specific region. Unfortunately, they're in one region until now because Tusk has connected them all together with technology and again, 40% savings. And the way they do it is Tusk has got pre-negotiated rates. So when you reach out to Tusk, they will get you that 40% savings right off the bat. And so go to tusklogistics.com and there's a button that says get started. Hit that button and get started. Save yourself some money. This is a can't, can't lose deal. So how's it going, Mary? It's going great, Joe. 75 degrees here in North Carolina, and it's February, or now early March. I'm just stoked. <laughs> that I know you are from Chicagoland, right? So you appreciate that 75 degrees. It's probably I do 30 very, degrees. very, much. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Mary, please introduce yourself and your company, where you're calling from today. Yeah, so I am Mary Keogh. I'm a senior marketing strategist at a marketing agency called Gorilla76. Gorilla76 is an agency that only serves mid-sized B2B industrial and manufacturing clients. So that's our kind of area of expertise. And I'm calling today from beautiful Charlotte, North Carolina. Beautiful, beautiful. And and I know we've talked about this um, offline I love I love the content. That's how I found you. I think my friend Blythe Broomleave commented or follows you, and so I started following you. And I know you say you do industrial, but it seems as if some of the stuff in industrial there's overlap with what we do here in logistics and supply chain when it comes to sales and marketing. And what I should say is we're behind, <laughs> just like industrial <laughs> is. We have similar problems, right? We we tend to, to want to lead with tech, right? For sure. And we want to lead with, hey, you have no idea about the specifications of my new product. You'll be blown away. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that, that, that has traditionally been our marketing. So anyway, tell us a little bit about Gorilla 76 and where, where is Gorilla 76 based? Yeah, so Gorilla76 is based in St. Louis, Missouri. It was founded by Joe Sullivan and John Franco. So they were friends in college and just decided to go out on their own and start this agency. And, you know, initially they would take anything they could get. 
But they kind of found this specialty in industrial. It started in construction and kind of expanded from there. And they decided to just own it. Like, hey, there's no nobody owning the title of an agency specifically for industrial manufacturing. So it's just kind of spiraled from there. It's been awesome. Joe has a podcast now called The Manufacturing Executive. The strategy team that I'm a part of has their own podcast called The Manufacturing Marketer. So we're really just trying to own that space. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, before we hit record, we were talking about the importance of picking a niche. And prior to the internet, you could kind of get away with not having a niche. I don't even know if you remember prior to the internet, but before the internet, I could call somebody and say, Oh hi Mary, uh, we specialize in industrial, and then the next and the next guy I call, I say we specialize in logistics, and it would all be fine because there was no way to look us up, there was no way to see our website. We didn't have one, right? In this day and age, it comes down to we ha- we know a part of our sales effort, marketing efforts, is online. People are looking for us online, and they are going to look for experts in the problems they have. Yep, exactly. That's why you should be an expert. And so anyway, you guys picked a specialty. And again, I think your specialty is adjacent to us. I have probably some overlap. And I know you create awesome content. You're one of the best follows on LinkedIn. I've Thank I've you. forwarded Mary's Mary's stuff to many friends and said, follow her. And by the way, my friend Steve Elwell, great guy, goes, oh, my God, she creates so much content. I didn't want this much. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> All right. You don't have to read it all, but um, great content. And we were talking about how hard that is. How many posts a week do you have on LinkedIn? Is it once a week, twice a week? I try to do three to five times per week. And I've been doing that consistently for about a year and a half now. And that, it, how many words is that? 200 words? Anywhere from 200 to, I think LinkedIn's limit is 750. And I've hit that limit a couple of times. So those are not fluff. They aren't popcorn. Those are well-researched ideas. And guys, I think this is one of the best ways we can all connect with the market is have some insights that are actually uh, substantial. Not, hey, if you, if, you, if you need a reefer, we have them, right? That's great. Yeah. <laughs> we, have a warehouse, we have open warehouse space. Great. That, that's better than nothing, but much better to be able to kind of share something that is useful to your prospective customers. Yeah, I think there's really a lack of content of just people working in public, which I really appreciate those posts. Like, here's what I'm doing today. Here's what's working for my, you know, insert in the brackets type of company. Here's how we're going to market. Here's how our sales team is executing. And I think those posts are just so incredibly valuable. So that's what really I've tried to emulate is just how can I work in public and show people what we're doing so they can be more successful too and maybe even hire us. Right. And I think one of the challenges, and I can say this because I've written a lot of articles in the past. Before I was a blog of a podcaster, I, I was a blogger. And I know it's hard to write articles. So if you have a day job, it's really hard to sit down and write an article. So I know some people are listening going, well, yeah, that's your job, Mary. You have to sit down and write all those articles. My job is to sell or to execute you know, something operational. So how how does the average average company manage that or not manage that more likely? Yeah. So most of the companies we work with do not have people, individuals posting on a social media channel or writing blogs. And 
I actually think that's okay. I think that it's more genuine, more authentic if the person wants to do it. So we do have three clients right now where the CEOs are posting on LinkedIn consistently three-ish times a week, and they're posting about exactly what we just talked about, working in public, what their company is doing. One of them is a tooling manufacturer. So he posts videos and pictures three to five times a week of all the different projects his, the tooling company is doing. And he said he's gotten inquiries from people, either LinkedIn DMs or emails just saying, hey, I really appreciate the content you're putting out. How can you help me? Right, right. And I haven't said this in a while, but I'll say it again is when we have a problem, we have an opportunity, we all start, and we'll talk about our personal lives. If you're sending your kids off to college, it begins with you going online and looking at colleges. You might be looking at what are the top colleges in the Midwest? What are What's the best school in Indiana? All these different things you might be typing in. How much does it cost? You know, How are we going to finance this? If I'm going on a trip with my significant other out to wine country in California, I'm going to look up I'm going to look up where should I stay, right? I'm, I might be looking for a blogger who's writing about affordable trips or the best place to stay or the unknown wineries. And I might be doing that six months or a year before I am ready to go on that wine vacation. And what I would love to do is find some blogger who is writing about some of the wineries that I want to go to. And or a travel agent who's got some insights into the best way to get that trip. And it's six months, year, maybe years before I'm going there. Maybe that's a dream trip. Yeah. And I think that's the difficult part because that doesn't fit into our sales marketing cycle the way we want it to. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Joe. And I think I've seen a really interesting evolution since COVID. So I think COVID initiated a lot of online content so people couldn't see someone face-to-face, -face, which so then people wrote more blogs. They tried to get more emails out. They tried to connect with their customers more digitally, but maybe the quality diminished a little bit. So what we're seeing is this interesting shift, lots of research online, but then verifying with a trusted source. And usually that's your network, right? Maybe if you're a CEO, it's an, a CEO group you're a part of or a CEO friend you have. For us, like I love that you brought up vacations. We're looking to rent a beach house this summer with our three kiddos. And we have friends who have you know various houses or have stayed different places on the Carolina coast. So we called them and they, we were like, hey, where should we stay? What are the best places to visit? So like you said, all right. starts online. And then now we're starting to kind of move that shift toward verifying with trusted sources. Yeah. And what do you mean by verify with trusted sources? Yeah. So just reaching out to your community. So in a business example, we have a community of industrial marketers that we have. It's a Slack community. And a lot of them are implementing CRMs for the first time. So they'll come to the community and say, hey, I've picked these three CRMs. So they've done their research on their own. I've narrowed it down to these three. What do you guys have to say? Does anybody use these? Would you recommend it? So it's this very interesting doing their research. So doing most of their research on their own. And then coming to a community or to someone they know with a similar job and asking them what they think. Yeah. Little, so that's almost back to the word of mouth that we always knew was important but couldn't quantify. Yes, exactly. So tell us a little bit about you. 
where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights. And then when and why did you join Gorilla 76? Yeah, that sounds awesome. So I grew up in the Chicago land area. I spent my whole life there until we moved to Charlotte about a year ago now. I went to Northern Illinois University, graduated with a degree in English, had no idea what I was going to do with a degree in English. So I took a lot of freelancing roles, editing, writing, landed a technical writing job at a company called Spring Systems, worked there for about six years, and that's where I really developed my passion for marketing. So I started out just technical writing, writing training materials, brochures, that kind of thing. And I had a leader reach out to me and he's like, hey, I can tell you're ambitious. You're really good at your job. Would you consider kind of shifting into a marketing role? And I was like, yeah, you know what? It was a really small segment of the company. The company's pretty large and the bar was low. So I was like, yeah, sure. I'll try this new role. Ended up doing really well in it, had some successful marketing strategies I executed, and then moved into corporate marketing for the same company. And eventually, Gorilla76, after I started posting on LinkedIn, so my LinkedIn journey began while I was working for Spraying Systems, Gorilla was following me and following the stuff that I was posting, reached out to me and said, hey, we have an open position. Would you, any chance you'd be interested? And that kind of sealed the deal. So what is your current job there? And what is, I I know you told me before and I didn't understand what you did every day. So explain your job and what you do. Yeah. So my title is senior marketing strategist. And what I do is I build, so a client comes to us and says, Hey, we're really thinking about working with you. I am the one who, with our founder, Joe Sullivan conducts a discovery call. So we learn a little bit about their business, their sales and marketing channels, And then we build and execute a marketing plan for them. And usually that goes, we'll do kind of the initial plan over the course of 12 months, and then they move into an ongoing retainer. So I'm the one building, executing, and then analyzing the results. And under me, I have a writer. So that person is writing kind of the long form articles. I have a creative person. So they're doing a lot of the graphic design. We have an in-house developer if we need to do any website work. So mine is kind of like the top role. So I'm just kind of saying, this is what we need to do for this client. And then shuffling it down to my team saying, this is who needs to execute what parts. Yep. And by the way, I'm sure there's people listening to my podcast and logistics and technologists and transportation guys, supply chain guys saying, we're talking market, marketing, Why we need sales, we need sales, we need sales. But what I feel like is happening, and it's really driven by, I think, the um, software as a service people, they have utilized marketing in a way that it seems as if they have gained uh, more and more responsibility in the overall sales and marketing portion of our company. And we know people are online. We have to somehow get with them. <laughs> and 95%, I think I, I think somebody quoted this to me the other day, 95% of the people who look at an article, like say you wrote today, if you wrote one, 95% of those people are not going to be buying marketing services today. So they're looking at you going, oh, smart gal, look at this, great stuff. I like it. But they aren't buying. Only 5% might be actually looking to buy what you're selling, right? And maybe that's even being generous. And that's the problem I think we run into. We're used to the idea that, especially in logistics and freight brokerage, where 
We make 100 phone calls a day, and most of the people don't answer. We're sending them cold emails. We're engaging with them online through LinkedIn. And most of them aren't interested either. It's just, I think the difference is with the 95% who aren't interested in what you're doing, they looked at your article and saw you potentially as a an answer to a problem they might have someday. They see you yes. as a resource. They don't see the guy who just left a voicemail. I don't see him as anything other than he's filling up my voicemail. And for those of us who don't have voicemail anymore, I don't know what they're doing. They're the, the ones who just send me emails. And we yeah, get them exactly. all. All of us get it now. We get the emails unsolicited. And, and what kills me is they're not connected to me on LinkedIn. They just – so I don't even know how they got my email. Probably my website. I, I, my email's out there. But that drives me crazy because now I can't even look at who you are. So I feel like when – when we look at sales and marketing, I feel like marketing's doing the upfront piece right. And not, not to say we're all doing it wrong by making phone calls. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think this is a great alternative to that or a supplement to that. Yeah, I completely agree. So anyway, you're the, you're the strategist. You're the ones who help plan out that stuff. And so you're the one who says, I think you need to spe- pick a niche. I think you need to promote the idea that you're this, this, and this. And not necessarily this, this, and this, right? Yes, exactly. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, I think I know what you do now. So anyway, <laughs> you have written a lot of uh, these articles, and I read most of them, many of them. And again, guys, Mary's a fantastic follow. And if you say, I'm not a marketer, if you're selling to somebody, <laughs> you should be following her. And even if you're not, you should be following her. But you have kind of, you've kind of, attacked a lot of, I'll call them sacred cows in our space. So let's talk about those five sales and marketing myths. So what's the first sales and marketing myth? And I, I know what I know what you're going to say because we talked about it, but you wrote a whole article or two about this. What's the first one? <laughs> the first one is by far the one that gets me the most, um, I won't call it hate mail, maybe just a disagreement. discussion, <laughs> disagreements, yes, is the first thing I would say is you're doing your trade show wrong. And maybe most companies shouldn't be doing the trade show at all. Really? Now, I just got back from a great trade show and it really worked out for me. And I know it's worked out for some of my friends. We were at Manifest and that was a logistics conference in Vegas. That worked out great for me. And I, I enjoyed it. I'm still following up. I think I'll get customers from it. But why? So you say some people are going to these and not getting their money's worth out of it. They're not getting the ROI that they're supposed to. Yeah, I think there's two ways that you can look at a trade show. And these are the two arguments I've also heard against my derail of trade shows is ROI. So, hey, I'm getting sales from it. And then number two is brand awareness. So we'll do ROI first. So the ROI piece, and I saw this when I was in-house. I see this with some of our clients here at Gorilla76, is they're just not tracking it. So they're not tracking the number of leads they're gathering from the trade shows. They're not uploading this into a reliable CRM or other data tracking warehouse. Then they're not following up with those customers into opportunities and then quoting that. And then of course, into customers. So most people are not even tracking the legitimate or reliable ROI of their trade shows. So how much are they actually getting out of this? And then when we look at ROI, we should also look at it not just as a dollars in, dollars out perspective, but the resource draw within your company. So especially with these larger trade shows, like 
We do some with medical device manufacturing. So MDNM is a really big trade show. We've had clients tell us, we can't do any work with you for the next six weeks because we're prepping for MDNM. So just like, I'll just pause there. That's, you know, (laughs) that's half a quarter where they're just pausing all sales and marketing efforts in favor of this large trade show where I know because I live in their CRM with them that they're not tracking the results through to pipeline and revenue. So I do want to look at it on those, the ROI, and I want to hear your opinion on this is just ROI dollars in dollars out isn't being tracked and then the resource draw within your company. Right, right. And I think you also said something, the way you were looking at some of this is customer acquisition costs. So if your average customer costs $5,000, and then you said it costs us $5,000 to acquire a new customer without a trade show, and then we just spent $100,000. And that would be be a big spend on a trade show. That would be, but you could look at your salaries there, right? You could look at the, the prep time, the actual the hotels the 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 tickets all that and maybe your sponsor so you spent a hundred thousand dollars and now you're as the as the queen of roi you come back and say okay guys show me the 20 deals that we're going to close on this and they say well it'll come over time (laughs) and you say well how quickly because this is how quickly our normal would happen yep that's exactly right so The way that we calculate, and you can do this in your own business today if you really want to, is calculate your entire sales and marketing budget. You can choose to include salaries or not, totally up to you, however you want to calculate it. Um, We have that whole sales and marketing budget. So that's how much you're spending to acquire new customers. Now we come down from that. How many new, what was that sales and marketing budget in 2022? How many new customers did you acquire in 2022? Then you just divide giant budget by new customers. That's how you get your customer acquisition cost. So I think the number I gave as an example in one of my LinkedIn posts was $5,000. Now what I want you to do is that whole trade show budget. Like you said, Joe, you can include salaries or not include salaries, depending on how you calculated that initial budget. Now what what is it? And in most cases, I'm seeing anywhere from 2 to 5x the typical customer acquisition cost. So it's costing you two times to five times more to acquire a new customer using a trade show versus your other or average sales and marketing channels. Yeah. And I know this, this is not a great argument, but it, well, maybe it is. It's an argument you can make. You say, well, we're a leader in the space. We have to be there. We have to be seen because we're one of the leaders in the space. What would it look like if the leader, like it would look like we are no longer that guy now, but Maybe another argument is I don't want that I don't want that budget attributed to normal marketing efforts. Call that something else. Say this is this is a, a segment of our budget that we don't expect to see new sales from. Yeah, and that's totally fair. I would say that if you're a leader in the space, make sure that you are also looking at the competitors in the field of the trade shows. So, really great example, Joe. You're saying okay. We're a leader in this in this space. So let's say it's supply chain and logistics. And you went to, I'm sorry, what was the trade show you attended in Vegas? Manifest. Manifest. Okay, great. And none of these rules apply to Manifest. You should just go to Manifest no matter what. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's fine. Well, we'll we do a lot with like robotics and systems integrators. So Oh, there's a ton something. of robotics guys there. <laughs> yes. Okay, perfect. That's awesome. 
So you are not just competing with the leaders in your tiny industry. You are now competing with the robotics and systems integrators who are also there. And I know like one company who is really big into automation. So they're big into warehouse automation. A lot of it is computerized. So they can't really show a lot at a trade show. They could probably do some cool videos or something, but they sent me pictures of who they were competing with at this big robotics show. And the big one, Fanuc, had a 100-foot robotic arm holding a Corvette. So that's who you're competing with. So regardless of who you are in the space, you're competing for the attention across all of these booths over a very, very short period of time. So not only are you competing against a lot of people, you're competing for time and resources too. Right. Yeah, it's it's a it's a tough call because I think some of these companies have been, been around a while. This is right now, this is a trade show season. We go to these trade shows every year. Now, I've had people I've talked to say, "Well, we don't I I don't like all. I can't go to all of them. I feel guilty." By the way, I was just talking to my friend. I won't mention his name. I said, "I'll see you at Manifest." He goes, "I can't go this year." He goes, "I am I go, "You go to all of the conferences he goes dude i'm not getting my work done i'm not he goes i'm not present there because i'm swamped already and then i go there i'll get new work i'm already swamped he goes i'm never present at those because i'm running back to my hotel room to do work i was like yeah yeah i see what can happen here i so so you're not you're not against trade shows you're just against trade shows blindly and I think that probably any blind spending where you're like, we always do this, right? Yes. Because <laughs> you're saying, that's fine if you always do it, but let's make sure it actually has a return on investment and we're getting new customers from it. Yeah. And if we're talking from the brand awareness perspective, because a lot of people come at me and say, it's not always about ROI. And I will say, of course it's not. But for brand awareness, so are you still just putting up a booth at this giant trade show where again, you're competing against Fanuc with the giant robot arm holding a Corvette? If so, so if I was running marketing at one of these organizations and they insisted on going to you know, Manifest or the big trade show of the season, I would say, great, then you, you CEO, are speaking at a breakout session and I'm going to book you for one. Because that's how you create content. That's how you're going to get real brand awareness from this trade show. So if that's really your goal is brand awareness, I want people to be more aware of our company, then we are going to maximize our time spent there. Yeah. And by the way, I'm just, I've am been on a lot of webinars in the past, and I know these are different than trade shows, but I never like the webinar to be the an event by itself. So like if I'm doing a webinar coming up on you know Friday, I already have people in my uh, who signed up a week before, 10 days before. I'm always already connecting with them on LinkedIn because I know their email address and I'm yeah. checking out who who are the people I think I would really like to know and sell to, right? So I'll connect with them and you know if you were signed up for a webinar, I would always send you a quick email saying especially if you're one of, I really want to talk to you. I don't mean the randos from, you know, China that signed up for my <laughs> North American <laughs> uh, webinar. I would send you a note saying Mary, I see you signed up for my webinar. Love that you're coming. Could we have a quick conversation? I want to understand what you're hoping to get from it. And people yeah, normally say yes. And I always say, so that's the way my way of taking that one one hour event on Friday and making it a few weeks before 
and then a few weeks after where you're following up and they start building relationships as opposed to letting it a one-time event. So I never like when somebody says, we're doing an event because I feel like you lose all those weeks before and all those weeks after. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, and you know one other thing I'll throw out there is I know there's different parts of a marketing budget. If this is just for market leadership and we're not going to get any money back from it, say so. Say this money, we don't have to get an ROI. We don't have to show ROI on this money. Yes. And by the way, I also reminds me years ago, I worked with a big shipper and they had problems. That's why they were had me helping them with selecting a new 3PL. And they were taking, there'd be customers unhappy with things. So what they would do is like, we'll just give you free shipping. We'll give you free shipping, free shipping. And I was like, wait a sec, that's not... That's not part of the logistics budget. That's marketing budget. Move that out. And they're like, what's it's logistics? I go, yeah, but you're giving it away for free. That's a marketing thing. That's a product thing. It has nothing to do with our logistics budget. So I guess my point is account for it properly. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, the next thing on this list is bought email list. So this is the next uh, sales and marketing myths. Why? Uh, so what, what is a bought email list? Yep. So these are email lists you purchase maybe from a vendor who's selling, you know, here's the oh, yeah. top 10,000. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, you know the deal. So yes, totally against bought email lists for a multitude of reasons. Number one being it's going to hurt your email reputation. So unless you're really intelligent with how you're going to use this email list, you need to put it through a scrubber. You need to make sure that these aren't spammed accounts or this account still exists. And most email automation platforms now will not let you send right. stuff through bought email lists. So if, so if I just bought a list of a thousand names of people who move refrigerated food, I could take that list. Let's say it was 5,000. And I said, I'm going to upload this to MailChimp. And MailChimp would say, whoa, 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 wait a sec. Did all these people opt in? I'd be like, yes, they did. They are not going to let me do that because they don't like, they don't want to get they don't want to get on the wrong side of the spam. Yeah, exactly. And then and then when you look at open rates, and I've worked with when I was doing a lot of marketing, and when I talked to um, people, they said, oh, we have a ridiculously low open rate. Or they didn't say that. I said that. It was like 6% open rate on their email list. I was like, where'd you get this list? I mean, they go, well, we developed it over time. And I was like, I don't think so. That's It's too low. And ultimately, I found out they got it from an association that they were doing some projects with. And doesn't work because those are just blind. They're just, you're just hitting someone with a blind email. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So not only are you paying your very important marketing and sales dollars to purchase this list that might not yield anything for you. Moreover, it is just not customer centric. So this is not a way that you would put the customer first. We were just talking before about how people want to do more research online. They want to buy on their terms. And a lot of that has to do with going to communities, going online and doing research. That's so cold emailing someone is just not how people want to buy today. So that's just another kind of flag for emails in general, but especially bought email lists. So not only have they not heard of you, they're not looking for your solution. You don't know if they're looking for your solution. So it's just not customer centric. Yeah. And so the way I should get my emails is I should have 
some content that they signed up for or I'm actually working with them. I talked to them and they didn't necessarily want to buy, but we want to keep them on our list of people to sell to eventually. And and it might be your list might get smaller, but it's better. So the idea isn't to have an oh I got twenty thousand names on this list and a three percent open rate when I send out emails. It's to say no, I have five thousand people and thirty five percent open in the email when I send it because they know who we are. Yes, exactly. And I've seen this happen also with so there's two kind of emails. There's the one email where I have that list and I individually send it maybe through my CRM or through my Outlook and just say, hi, Mary, thought you might be interested, right? That's that's one kind of email. And the other kind is when I put it in my email server, like a, a MailChimp or a Constant Contact. Are you against bought emails in both instances? Yes, definitely. Because again, but I think For that- sure in the client. Yeah, for sure on the latter side, but on the former side, that's interesting because, you know, some people argue that one-to-one is better, but I'm still for letting the customer or prospect be in charge of their buying process. So if they're not opting into emails from you, you shouldn't be sending them emails. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So that brings us to the next one, which is email newsletters, the next sales marketing myth. And I'm assuming you're not against email newsletters completely. Just certain aspects of them. So what don't you like about email newsletters? Yep. So not against email newsletters. Gorilla76 sends out a monthly email newsletter. I'm against email newsletters that are mostly company-centric. So Gorilla76, our newsletters might be a collection of podcasts with guest speakers on them. So we're highlighting a guest speaker. They might be collecting various sources from LinkedIn. They might be philosophical. In no instance are we ever saying, you should buy our products and services. It's pure, free education and knowledge. So most companies are not doing this with their email newsletters. They might be creating some content or a blog once a month and then putting that out through an email newsletter. And again, you're probably seeing it with the open and click-through rates, right? So if your open rates are below 25%, which is truly the industry standard now, then you know you know your email newsletters. What is the industry standard? It's 25% open rate. So that means you really have to weed out the people who don't want to be on your list. That's The yes. way you get a, that list to be better isn't by growing it as fast as you can. It's by saying, these guys never open it. And by the way, I'm not currently, right now, I'm not sending out an email newsletter. I'm going to restart it. and But I have names on it. And I always have at the very bottom, if you want off my damn list, click here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and and, and I, I stated that way many times. Went off my damn list, click here, because I don't want to be a pest. And by the way, you also hate when you get like, let's just say I, I had you on my, my email newsletter and I know you and then you unsubscribe. I'm like, I know like there's a part of me is like, Mary doesn't like my content. Like, and it's almost like I take it personally, but at the same time you go, yeah, so what? Like, at least she felt comfortable getting off my list because I don't want her on there going, Joe's such an ass. He sends me these emails constantly. <laughs> and by the way, a lot of the emails, maybe I'll ask you about this also. You talk to somebody, I I will opt in on something on Facebook or LinkedIn where I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. I, that interesting piece of software. And they're going to give me a demo. And then you start getting an email. Hey, and 24 hours, we're going to meet with you. 10 hours, we're going to meet with you. One hour, we're going to meet with you. And you're like, I, I get why they're doing that. They, that. That improves the chances I'm going to show up. And then 
an hour after I get one, a day after. And they sometimes will have this sequence, and I know it's a sequence, that just feels like, what are you, crazy? <laughs> You're like re- reaching out every day from sometimes multiple times a day. And I always say there's companies do that. I won't mention the names, but there's retail companies that do that. And I'm assuming oh, yeah. it works to some extent or they wouldn't do it. But I find it annoying. Yeah, and you have to separate yourself too from that B2C mindset because I think a lot of companies see B2C emails. So that's business to consumer. So somebody like, you know, I get Bath and Body Works emails all the time because I bought candles from them one time. It yeah. makes sense in a B2C atmosphere because <laughs> first of all, a lot of people will open them and they're e-commerce. So if you are not e-commerce, you shouldn't be sending out emails like that because people can't buy directly from it. Yeah. I have two daughters. And so they n- n- never, when I'm buying them gifts, can it just be from Amazon? It's always like some sustainable brand, right? Which is fine. I'm, that's good. I'm glad they're using those brands, but I have to go on their websites and then I get, then I am not a woman and, but I get those emails constantly. It's like, so there was one brand I won't mention that I was like, I'm not buying anything from that (laughs) company again for my kids because they've just annoyed the hell out of me. Yep. Yeah. So I heard somebody make this point. I think it was Neville Mahora. He's a great copywriter. He's behind AppSumo, the copywriter. And he said their rule of thumb is 75% of what we send is just educational. Just here, you have a problem and we're talking about that problem, how you can solve it. Maybe we maybe you'll solve it without us, but we want to be that that we want to be that resource. And he said only 25% have anything to do with buy from us. And yeah, I like that rule. I, th- I think you have to be really careful. And, you know, I, I joked about this, but it's no joke. Some people feel feel like they got off the, uh, off the phones and went right to LinkedIn and just spammed me. Spam, 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 constant. And I feel like, oh, you're using technology to be the same annoying presence you were on the phone. Yes. It's not the idea. So. Yep, exactly. We've talked about three myths. One is trade shows, and you're not against trade shows. You're just against the idea of them being not not a good ROI in some cases. So get to the right trade shows. And the next is don't buy that email list. Earn it. And then the next is if you're going to create an email, make it customer-centric. Be the resource that they – and it's really hard to create a lot of emails that go, These, this is an email that I want to get. Be that email. And the next one, print media first. I wrote this down. What do you mean by print media first? You hate that. What is that? Yes. So print media first, it's very common in industrial manufacturing companies who are a sales-led motion. So they have a very large sales team who goes to meet customers in person, or they run a lot of trade shows. They print a lot of material. So they make white papers, brochures, bulletins, a nice paper, catalogs, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And all of this is print first, meaning it was created and given to a graphic designer or a print house and meant to be printed. And then what they'll do is just take the shortcut and say, okay, upload the PDF to our website. And that's just such a huge miss. So it's expensive. All of these, yes. First of all, it's expensive. Second of all, 
there is very little that you can analyze once that's dropped off. So let's say we have, you know, Joe, you go to visit your client, you're going to drop off. Hey, you know, great meeting today. Here's a bulletin in case you want to read a little more about our product or service. Here's garbage for your desk. <laughs> exactly. So A, it's probably either garbage and B, it's gone. Like You might as well have just set it on fire because I can't trace anything from there. Now, if you create a digital asset first and publish it to your website, send your customer a link in an email or even text them the link, I can track everything from there. So I can track how long they stayed on the page, if they went to other web pages from there. So just the amount of data you can gather from digital first media is so much greater than print first media. And again, like we've said, it's customer centric. So if you send them a link in an email and you know they don't think about you for a couple weeks, which is highly likely, they'll go to their email and say, oh yeah, I think Joe sent me that link to a bulletin. So I'll go later. So the digital first media is again, just putting the customer first. Like you should always create digital media first because most people are using phones over a printed material. Yeah, I, I have a rule myself that it, if it's important, it becomes digital. So if I, I'm writing down notes about something, if it really matters to me, I will make it digital. I'll put it into a PowerPoint or I'll put it into an email and send it to myself or send it to my team. I don't like stuff that is digital because I want to throw it out. And I feel like we're all in this mode of, I don't want junk at my house. So I don't want junk on my desk. I look at my desk and I always think, when there's a pile here that I should go through. But when I go through that pile, I'm pretty much sure that that is all going to be thrown out. The vast majority. There's no file folders with stuff anymore for me. It's all digital. So when somebody gives me, by the way, I just went to Manifest and I enjoyed it very much. Mentioned that earlier. I asked, should I make business cards before I go? Because my business cards are out of date. They don't have my current logo. And they had badges that I, you know, you could, you could scan badges. So like if I met you, Mary, I was like, click. And what was cool is it sent me an email saying your new connection, Mary Keogh, and had all your contact information and sent you the same. And I was like, and then there's an app, the Manifest app. I love that because I didn't have to go get business cards, but also people did give me business cards. They're still sitting downstairs um, that I'm going through them. I didn't have too many. You know, normally you get like three inches of yeah. business cards and you go, I don't even remember these people. Well, it's not so bad now. There's probably only 30 of them, but I'm still going to put a rubber band around them at some point and put them in my desk and then throw them out in a year. Now, I will follow up with some, but it's just the idea of the printed is just not as useful as digital. And to your point, you can't track it. Yeah. And again, not against any of these things holistically, just against the way that they're usually done, right? So you don't have to print out everything you ever made. Yeah. I think what your point is on all of these trade shows, bought email lists, email newsletters, print media first is don't automatic, don't have automatic thinking about this stuff. Don't go on autopilot. If, if somebody came to you and said, here's why we want this print media first, you're like, yeah, well, let's have a conversation at least, but don't just blindly do it because you've been doing it that way since the 80s. <laughs> because, because the old boss didn't know how to turn on his computer. So the last point we had here is company-only social media points posts. Company-only social media posts. What does that mean? 
Yep. So this is super common again in industrial and even in some cases SaaS. So that's software as a service or technology companies where the company will only post from the company page. So no individual person at that company is posting content or sharing content. It's just all from the company page. Yeah. And so that people don't connect necessarily with the brands, they connect with the people who work for the brand. So we always want to put a human face on a brand. And that's a problem, though. And, and so Gorilla76 could put out content. I'm, not, I'm talking to Mary rather than the founder of Gorilla76. They could look at that as a, as a threat. They could look at that as a problem. And, that, and there's a lot of companies, by the way, who don't like when their people create content online. They're like, I have to somehow keep control of this brand. And that means I don't let crazy people create posts that might just might sink the whole ship over here. Right. Isn't that the thinking? Yep, absolutely. That's very common, of course. And I think that's a really a too bad way of looking at things. Now, of course, if anybody's posting anything inappropriate, you should address it. But in most instances, when salespeople or product people, we've even had engineers post content, just it helps to see if a message resonates. And that's super important. So not only are you seeing if your audience is responding to what the person is posting, but like you said, they're also building an affinity to that person and therefore to your brand. But interesting thing from a technical perspective, we've run this experiment a few times. So Gorilla76 has roughly 5,000 followers. We have other company members who have roughly the same amount of followers. And a very interesting thing occurs. LinkedIn, which is the most common probably B2B company social media platform that businesses will use, suppresses the reach of company pages. So somebody, a person who has 5,000 followers might post something and they'll get on average about 1,500 impressions. Now we've run the same content, so same type of content from the Gorilla76 company page. The number of impressions is sometimes as low as 20% of that individual, even though they have the same amount of followers. So not only does is it you know great to build an affinity with a person over a brand, but LinkedIn actually does not put out the company posts as much as an individual's. Right. And you know, I've seen companies create LinkedIn profiles, usually small companies, especially Asian companies. They'll say, XYZ company, connect with me, Joe. And I I don't. I'm like, I'm not connecting to companies on here. I'm connecting to people. And and I also remember when I was still doing some content marketing, I was writing articles for companies. And I remember they had this idea that, oh, well, this will come from our CEO. And Joe's the ghostwriter. And what I asked, I said, I want to have the CEO's voice on a topic. I want to have his real, I want to have a conversation with him. I want to hear his perspective and I want to write that. And and I said, when I write that article, I want there to be his voice. I want it to be a blog post, not an article and is allowed to have some rough edges. And what I mean by that is uh, exaggerations and opinions and, you know, hot take and, what would happen is they say, oh, you can't see the CEO. You have to talk to marketing. And then then his team would mark up the articles and they would turn 
my spicy bacon cheeseburger into oatmeal. <laughs> and yep. I hated it. And after a while, I didn't care how much they paid me. I did not want to write because it became like this sanitized marketing drivel. And by the way, that's one of the challenges also with the podcast. You're a marketer, but we, we agreed to a t- title here, Five Sales Marketing Myths. Sometimes people want to get like this, they want to put their tagline in there. And I always think it doesn't help to be salesy because Americans have such an aversion to that. We have such, it's like nails on a chalkboard and somebody's selling, right? Yes. But I think it's it's also we don't engage with companies. And, and you know, you think about Nike. Nike, when you say Nike, you go, oh, like Air Jordan, all these different brands, the people they have there. We personify them because that's what we want to do. We don't talk about, oh, I love, I follow Nike because a whole bunch of shareholders and Phil Knight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I follow yeah, because, I follow Nike because I'm Michael Jordan. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, we're seeing a lot of smaller brands in athletics that people go, oh, I'm going to start following um, Under Armour. hardly small, but there's all these other brands that are popping up and we're, we're connecting with the smaller brands. So I think people are really against the idea of connecting with a brand. And if they are, they're always looking for the next great thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So how do I control that? Pro- the problem of, I'll, I'll call you a star, Mary. So you're a star at Gorilla 76 and they're, they're paying you to write these articles and now you're getting a following. They could look at that as, oh, this is a real threat because Mary could get a big head and then run off and start her own agency. That's, I mean, and when you have good people who can write good articles, that's always the problem, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's a, it's an issue that Gorilla76 has been honest about with all its employees who post on LinkedIn, but that's not the point because again, like what we said, when you start associating an individual person with a brand, then you still think of them as that brand. So let's say Mary Keough is the marketer for um, industrial and manufacturing, and she works at Gorilla 76. They've been following me for a while. I leave, you know, become head of marketing somewhere else or join another agency, go off on my own. Then it's, I still, they still remember the industrial manufacturing agency Gorilla 76, right? Regardless of if I work there or not. And during that time, it was like value add for them. So I think that's just such a disappointing point of view when I hear right. that companies suppress individual voices because they're afraid that person might go. It's just, it's like so, it's very cringy to me to associate that kind of control over employees. It's an old school thing to have. And I think what we have to have, reminds me of a friend and he uh, worked for one of the big six accounting firms now tech firms, whatever you want to call them. But it was, I think it was Pricewaterhouse. I think they got by, or it was Cooper's Library. They got bought by Pricewaterhouse. And every year they would have a party near Christmas time and it would be an alumni party. And he said, we have this huge party celebrating our alumni. And I was like, what? And he goes, yeah, everybody who ever worked here comes back. It's a huge bash. And I go, really? And he goes, we get tons of business from it. And he goes, because we hire the very best. And that's our thought anyway. That's our hope. And then and then we treat them well. They do well. And they're going to have other opportunities. And we're going to be known by our alumni. That's a hard, hard thing to look at for a lot of people. But 
how many LinkedIn profiles do you see now that say X Amazon? So it could be founder slash X Amazon slash yes. dog mom slash. <laughs> <laughs> we see that and X Amazon, you go, oh, that's X Amazon VP. That means something, right? We immediately go, they have been part of a rocket ship. Exactly. And they left for whatever reason. Yeah, so getting back to it, the company only social posts, what you would recommend is go ahead and release these articles. Even if it's by Mary Keo, you would share it with the company page, but you would also share it through Mary and whoever else, right? Yeah. And what we found is the company page is actually great for recruiting. So maybe it's not great for sales and business or generating leads, which the personal accounts are very good at. The company page is great for recruiting. So if you need to, like you said, access the best in the world, when we put out a job post on our LinkedIn, we have at least 10 applicants in 24 hours. Yep. By the way, I started the logistics of logistics as a blog. And when I was blogging, I used to share stuff posts inside of groups and there used to be a lot of discussion back then about blog posts and about everything and then people would delete all of my blog posts out of their groups and i was like why am i being deleted out of this i don't get it so i started the logistics of logistics group on linkedin because there weren't company pages then so i started so now i have a group that's like 12 years old and it's like two hundred twelve thousand people <laughs> which I always tell people, you get a big group like that, it's not it's not as focused. There's people all over the world in that group. When it first started, it was people who followed my blog. Now, as a result of, and a lot of those were overseas, which is fine. It's just I don't, I don't sell to people overseas. Although I appreciate your listens. Well, 40% of my audience <laughs> is overseas. Anyway, I'm going to, I'm going to list these, then I want you to summarize these, and then I want you to give us your final thoughts on these Five sales and marketing myths. So the first one we talked about is trade shows. You're not against trade shows. You're just against blindly going to trade shows without being aware of the ROI and the potential costs that are there. Second, you're definitely against bought emails. That is cheap and sleazy and doesn't lead to good results. (laughs) Email newsletters. You're not against email newsletters. You're against bad email newsletters. You should be sharing. You should be looked at as a resource, not as an annoyance. Print media first, that is, I think, a very outdated way to look at the world. We don't want to be creating glossy brochures that we can drop off at somebody's desk. Better to create something internal. I mean, electronic that you can track. And then last is this company-only social media post, which is, again, kind of a dated thing. It's we, we all have to figure out how to manage and keep our stars and the best way is not to muffle them and keep them locked up. They're the ones who can get us new biz. So final thoughts, Mary? Yeah, I think you summarized it well. What I'd really just like to emphasize with these sales and marketing is if you're a CEO, if you're a leader of a company, you are analyzing your company holistically. You're using a set of frameworks to analyze results. That might be like EBITDA, you know, dollars in, dollars out, ROI. You know, if you're running logistics and you have a software, you have a set of framework and skills. You can apply those same things to sales and marketing, but you're not doing it right now. 
So that's really what all of these tactics come down to is you've been doing them forever. So you just keep doing them and you're not putting them through the same logical frameworks that you're using to analyze other aspects of your business. Right, right. There are, I love, love what you just said there. And I feel like it, when we get to the sales side, just sales, there's things like you always hear, like always be closing. You know, you hear these things that you go, well, is that always right? Is that, is there any research behind that that supports that? Or is that just something that your sales manager said to you when you first started working 30 years ago? We have to we have to really question ourselves. And by the way, I, I was talking to a marketer yesterday, and she said, it "Seems as if software as a service, which is more technical." She said they seem to be driving a lot of the best practices into logistics, and I suspect into industrial too. So yeah, the way they look, the way they're looking at things is very scientific. Used to be marketing was kind of just wrong way to say it, but fluffy. Like you could not show the results of marketing, and then it came for a while where marketing was just kind of like they're the tail of the dog. Sales is the real animal, right? I think now we're seeing sales and marketing is just so integrated, and it's not it's not sales's little brother anymore. It is it's the it's a it's an important part of the company if we do it right, and. Doing these things, if you're doing them all wrong, then you become the little brother again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. But I think so often now you see logistics companies saying, we are looking at marketing as a way to drive demand here. And it's not going to be, we made you know thousands of phone calls to people randomly who, who ship stuff. And, and that might get you business, that still works, but it's not going to get you the person who says, I'm spend $50 million a year and I'm going online to look for the very best 3PL. Yes. So anyway, Mary, before you go, I want to ask you, how do we, who, who do you work with over at Gorilla 76 and how do we reach out to you? Yeah. So at Gorilla 76, we work with mid-market B2B industrial and manufacturing companies. So that could really be anybody in the manufacturing ecosystem. We worked with anything from like tool manufacturers, so what I would call like a commodity product, to medical device manufacturing, contract manufacturers, all the way through industry 4.0. So robotics and systems integrators, or even software as a service who um, serve the manufacturing sector. So there's some overlap with uh, logistics and supply chain folks. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And we work mainly with mid-market companies too. So nothing too large, nothing too small. Okay, so what I'll do is I'll put a, a link to your LinkedIn profile and I'll put a link to any other marketing links that you give me since you're a marketing company. I'm sure you'll give me plenty. Yep. <laughs> and I do really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thank you, Joe. I really appreciate coming on today. It was awesome to talk to you. Yeah, and by the way, guys, if you aren't following Mary, please do because she is a great follow on LinkedIn. Again, I really love her content. And and if you're saying I'm not a marketing person, it's this is stuff that is related directly to sales. I I don't think we can separate sales and marketing anymore like we used to. It just there's too much there's too much at stake now, and we have to work together. And we, and we all have marketing budgets, so we might as well get the most out of them. <laughs> I totally agree, Joe. Yep. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You have been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage with leaders in the logistics and supply chain community. 
If you like what you hear, please subscribe, hit the like button, and leave us a nice review on Apple or Spotify or wherever else you listen. Also, please check out our videos on YouTube and connect with us on LinkedIn. We're very big on LinkedIn. And you can also reach us on the logisticsoflogistics.com, our website.